0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Hello,
1: Old Sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I'm Dan Newman, along with my co-host, Andrew Newman, and I'd like to thank you for once again joining us on Hello, Old Sports. This is Episode 7. It was a year when the greatest home run hitter in baseball joined the team that would make him famous when two new professional sports leagues were born, and a 72-year-old won an Olympic medal. A man died after being hit by a pitch, and one of the greatest legends in horse racing dominated the scene. Hear all of those stories and more as we journey back to 1920 on this episode of Hello Old Sports. Andrew, how are you today?
2: I am doing well, Dan. Uh, We are marking the, I guess, centennial of 1920, a monumentous year. Obviously, baseball will be a major thing. It was a major sport in the country at the time, but there's certainly some things sort of seeds growing in the other sports that are definitely interesting and, and worth getting into.
1: Exactly. So we talked in our first episode, which seems like so long ago. It's hard to believe that we're only on episode seven. We feel like we've spent so much time recording over the last couple of months, but one of the things we talked about is how we want to do all different sorts of things on the show. We want to have lists and rankings. We want to do sort of more wide sweeping things like we did with the uh, last two episodes with the boxing episodes. And then we also want to travel back to specific moments in time and, We figured that this would be – this was one of the first things, actually, when Andrew and I first talked about the potential of doing this. This was one of his first suggestions was a show specifically on 1920 in sports. And the obvious reason for choosing 1920 as the first year that we travel back to is that it's a 100 years ago. But it's also really sort of a watershed in the history of professional sports. You have the birth of the NFL – you have the first, what I think most would consider the first modern year in baseball history when Babe Ruth's first year on the Yankees, his first year as, as a full time hitter. He had been a pitcher mostly with Boston, but this was his first year with the Yankees, first year as a hitter. It was the first year of the Negro leagues. Well, now that's quite the simplification and we'll get into that. In a little bit, but also all of these other things that were going on in any sport from horse racing to tennis to college football, sort of you name it. So in addition to it being a hundred years ago, we also thought it was a good year to examine first off, because it's sort of the birth of a lot of the things that we still see in sports today.
2: Exactly. And I think you made it pretty clear, but just so I can reiterate, because if you're like me, you were like me with searching for, uh, you know, searching for things on this topic, whenever you type, would type in 1920, you would get things about the whole decade. So just to kind of hammer that home, we're talking specifically about the year 1920, not the whole 1920s as a decade. Certainly that's, you know, we could do, I'm sure, an episode or two on each one of those years. This is just about, you know, January 1st, 1920 until December 31st, 1920.
1: So just to give a very, very brief overview of where we are in the country, World War II had ended in November of 1918. Woodrow Wilson, who had been the president throughout most of the 19-teens, had declined to run for re-election because of some declining health. A presidential election was taking place, took place in November. Warren Harding was elected president vowing to bring the country back to what he called normalcy. And although it wasn't explicitly stated by Harding himself, spectator sports were sort of a big part of that. Prohibition had just come in and the 18th Amendment was ratified and went into effect in 1920. And professional sports were sort of part of this new consumer culture a lot of it bubbling up around speakeasies, a lot of it bubbling up around the newfound wealth coming out of the war, radio, and it was really an era of great American heroes, uh, Charles Lindbergh, that type of thing, and sports was such a huge part of it, and you have, probably for the first time in the 1920s, you have these larger-than-life sports figures coming onto the stage and Making their presence known in sort of the American psyche. And so that the, when you hear about the roaring twenties, you talk about prohibition and gangsters and culture and jazz music. Sports are a part of all of those things. So with that, why don't we go ahead and get started with 1920 and This will, more likely than not, and if you've listened to the podcast, you realize that Andrew and I always end up talking a lot more than maybe we would have anticipated, so we fully anticipate that this will be a two-episode series on 1920, much like the boxing series was, much like the all-time New York baseball team series was, and The goal at the moment, and we think this is how it's going to go is to talk about everything but baseball in the first episode. Are you ready to get started? I am. So the first thing that we want to talk about that happened in 1920 was the founding of something known as the American Professional Football Association in Canton, Ohio. This was the first organized professional football league in American history, the first one that really had staying power, power. It played under that name of the American Professional Football Association for about two years before finally becoming known as the National Football League, a name which it continued with to this very day. And anybody who paid any sort of attention to professional football and to the NFL last year knows that last year was the 100th year of the NFL and the founding was in 1920. So. Under auspicious beginnings, or inauspicious beginnings, I would say, 1920 sees the very first year of what would eventually become known as the National Football League.
2: Yeah, and we can obviously talk about the specifics, but, you know, it was, no matter where you start in terms of when you feel like football became football as we know it today, whether you think 1970 with the merger or 1966... Super Bowl, you know, 58 with the greatest game ever played, back further and further you, you go, even the person who's the most sort of liberal with their definition of how long football has been a recognizable game, pro football especially, would not extend it back to 1920, and we'll talk about some of the reasons why.
1: And uh, just to read to you here from a piece of contemporary reporting, the purpose of the new league was to, quote, raise the standard of professional football in every way possible, to eliminate bidding for players between rival clubs, and to secure cooperation in the formation of schedules, at least for the bigger teams. Members of the organization reached an agreement to refrain from offering inducements to players to jump from one team to another, which has been one of the glaring drawbacks to the game in past seasons. So, there had been professional football organizations in the past. I think the best way to describe it is sort of barnstorming. Teams would schedule games on their own. They would play. There was no real organization. And this was an effort led in large part by George Hallis, who was the head of a team known as the Decatur Staleys, which later became the Chicago Bears. And so it was really an effort led by Hallis and some others To bring some organization into professional football, they met in Canton, Ohio to charter the league. Uh, That's the reason why the Pro Football Hall of Fame is located in Canton, Ohio. They named Jim Thorpe as the first president of the league, even though he was a player on one of the teams. Now, Thorpe was just a figurehead. He only lasted as league president for one year, but... They felt that having his name at the front of the new league as the president was the best way to go and get some publicity. There were 14 teams, and I want to just read you the list of the 14 teams. We have the Chicago Cardinals, the Chicago Tigers, the Decatur Stalys, as I mentioned, the future Chicago Bears, the Rock Island Independents, the Hammond Pros, that's Hammond, Indiana, Muncie Flyers, that's Muncie, Indiana. Detroit Heralds, Akron Pros, Canton Bulldogs, Cleveland Tigers, Columbus Panhandles, Dayton Triangles, Dayton, Ohio, Buffalo All-Americans, and Rochester Jeffersons. The one thing that probably should stand out is that other than Chicago, none of the major cities in the United States are on that list. It is a very heavily Midwestern organization, and only two of the teams Would remain in the league long term, those being the two Chicago teams, the the Decatur Staley or two of the Chicago teams, the Decatur Staley's who would later become the Chicago Bears and the Chicago Cardinals who would later become the St. Louis Cardinals and then the Phoenix Cardinals and the Arizona Cardinals. So the oldest continuous franchise in the NFL is the Cardinals, even though a lot of that's something a lot of people don't realize. I think maybe it's the Packers, but Only one team with the same name has been in the NFL for its entire now 101 season history, and that's the Cardinals.
2: Yeah, and sort of on that first list of teams you mentioned, 11 of those teams were present at the meeting when everything was founded. The uh, Buffalo All-Americans, Chicago Tigers, Columbus Panhandles, and Detroit Heralds. So those four teams came a little bit later. They were still played the first season but they weren't at that initial founding meeting. The other 10 teams you mentioned were, and there was also an 11th team, and I don't know if I'll pronounce this right, but the Massillon Tigers, who it says the first order of business at that meeting was to announce their withdrawal from professional football for the 1920 season. So, (laughs) you know, being the first team to to ever leave the NFL, I guess. Probably the only well, no, no, I'm sure much later there or later there was, but um, yeah. So you started with kind of ten at that meeting, and then by the time the 20 season actually kicked off, you had the the 14 team, which is kind of interesting to think about. 14 is really as big as, and I know it's it comparing it even to the 50s is is not really accurate. But when did the NFL get to 14 teams? later on. I mean, it was, for the most part, it was smaller than that up until got to be at some point in the fifties when they added, who were the last two teams? They added the Viking, the saints and the Falcons. And before that, the Viking, like what I'm trying to say is as late as the early fifties, there was only 10 or 11 teams in the NFL.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that tends to be a, you see that with the NBA, you see that with the national league and baseball in the 1800s, that tends to be the way it works. There's a lot of teams at the beginning and then it's sort of, winnows down as the years go on and then eventually comes back up when expansion comes about much later in the second half of this century. Some quirks. Uh, teams were responsible for their own scheduling. There was no time to set forward a schedule. So it wasn't until 1921 that there was actually a set league schedule. In 1920... All of the teams were responsible for their own scheduling, and they also play outside teams. So even though these 14 teams are considered a part of the APFA, they don't actually – they're not exclusive. They play other teams throughout the season, and you, when you look at the results from the season, that's that's very obvious that they're they're playing all sorts of other different teams throughout the season.
2: First game ever involving one team from the AFPA or is it APFA? PFA. Yeah. Okay. APFA. Rock Island Independents who were a member playing the St. Paul Ideals who were not a member and winning 48 to nothing. And then the first game involving two teams who were both league members was the next week. And that was the Dayton Triangles, uh, shutting out the Columbus Panhandles 14 to nothing in Triangle Park.
1: Just to be clear, it was not actually shaped like a triangle. The playing field was not a triangle. You don't know that for a fact. I'm pretty. Sh- I mean, I'm, well, I'm I'm pretty sure that if that was the case. That at some point they would have that would have been reported in the history.
2: Well, it's like how they always talk about the first college football game in 18 whatever with Rutgers and whoever it was, and then you read the rules and it was basically it was soccer. <laughs> 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 it was a topic for another this day, but like the rules of that first game, it was like, oh, you couldn't touch the ball with your hands and you had to kick it over the goal line. It was soccer. But anyway, that's, a, a you know. So my point is you don't actually know what Triangle Park's dimensions were.
1: Probably not. <laughs> a couple of the rules that are worth keeping in mind. Rosters are set at 16 players. Passes are only allowed from five yards behind the line of scrimmage or more, so you couldn't just take the snap and throw the ball. This is likely related. 36 of the 40 games between league teams are shutouts, and coaching from the sidelines is not allowed, and players substituting into the game are not allowed to speak to the players that are already on the field until after the after the first play that they're in the game. So really preventing any sort of communication between the sidelines and the playing field.
2: That's what, you know, there, there's things that sort of in a lot of sports endure, endured for the first 30, 40 years of a, of a game. And then there's things that right away were eliminated. And that feels like one that pretty quickly into pro football's history was, was abandoned, not
1: being allowed to speak,
2: which I guess leads me to believe were there penalties for speaking?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. I, in my research, I wasn't able to find anything about the, the structure of how penalties were issued and enforced, but I would have to imagine that there certainly were that they certainly would have been penalized in one way, shape or form for that. Couple other things about the makeup of the players themselves. First of all, in large part, the league is founded as a, Vehicle for Jim Thorpe, Jim Thorpe, who had been an Olympic star for the United States in 1912, who played Major League Baseball for a year or two and had been sort of the star of the barnstorming professional football of the 19 teens. There's a reason why they name him the president, and he's sort of meant to be the face of this new league. To this day, there are 12 players who played in that first season who've been inducted into the Hall of Fame. Most of these are probably names you would not hear. George Hallis was a player as well as the coach of the Decatur team. Guy Chamberlain, who was a great end, who many consider to be sort of one of the first pass receivers in NFL history. Joe Guyon, who was uh one of the first inducted into the Hall of Fame. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1966. So not many players that you would have heard of even a few years later. A lot of the people that are associated with early professional football, Red Grange, Ernie Nevers, even some of those players are not in the league when it gets its start in 1920. The other thing I think is worth mentioning is that this is very much a league with a heavy Native American population. In fact, as their early 20s go on, there are some teams that are made up entirely of Native American players. So the Native American influence, obviously with Jim Thorpe being the most prominent example of this, very, very important to the league's early history.
2: Yeah, there was a, a, a school, Carlisle Indian Industrial, ended up actually folding in 1917. Primitive terms, and when I say primitive, I mean in terms of football. Um, Unfortunate choice of words, I apologize. Um, was known as sort of an, a primitive football factory back then. If such a thing existed, they would have been the first one. So there were a lot of a heavy influence of Native American players and Again, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right. The Oorang Indians in 1922 and 1923 were comprised entirely of native talent. Um, And I think also that what Bear is mentioning is, and I think this is probably because of the league basically being half a step above a a kind of barnstorming operation between 1920 and 1926, there were A total of nine black players who were involved in the NFL. And then in 1927, they were the color line was was redrawn temporarily. And then there was for a lot of the early 30s, there was maybe one black player in the league at a time. But even still, you're talking about decades before Jackie Robinson that, um, you know, there were at least a few players in the fledgling. NFL that were African-American.
1: And I want to get to that in a second. The most prominent of the African-American players was Fritz Pollard, who was the captain and coach of the Akron Pros, the eventual national champions. Contemporary football fans may know him because he is the namesake of the Fritz Pollard Lions, which is the group that tries to increase the number of African-Americans and I guess all minority candidates that are hired for coaching positions in the NFL. I want to get to the Akron pros and the championship in just a second, just a real quick sort of statistical. The leading passer is Al Mart, M A H R T of the Dayton Triangles with 591 yards. The leading rusher is Dutch Steneman of the Staley's with 274 rushing yards. A future Hall of Famer is Dutch Steneman and then another Dutch Dutch Steele, again of the Triangles, is the leader in receiving yards with 181 receiving yards. So obviously not numbers that would mean anything to anybody today, but just to give you an idea of who the players were, some of the stars, and then what numbers were leading the league in those days. So the season finishes with the Akron Pros in an undefeated. Eight wins, zero losses, and three ties. They are six zero and three against teams within the league. A hundred and fifty one points scored, and only seven points against.
2: No, I was just going to say, you know, sort of on the flip side, not counting the Muncie Flyers who only are recorded as playing one game, the Cleveland Tigers who played eight games, and everybody's played bet- basically between eight and thirteen games for. You know, most of them topped out about 10 or 11, but there was a few 13s. The Cleveland Tigers, who are recorded as having played eight games, scored 28 points
1: in eight games. So they
2: averaged under three or just over three points a game.
1: So you talked about Pollard or you talked about African-American players generally, and we talked about Pollard and the Akron pros and all of these things sort of tie in together. The league, the African American players in this game that takes place on December twelfth, nineteen twenty. Which, even though it is not a championship game, it's sort of seen as a championship game. Both Akron and the Decatur Staleys are undefeated. The pros are seven zero and three. The Staleys are ten zero and two. So they set up this game between the Akron Pros and the Decatur Staley's at Cubs Park in Chicago. And the first thing that's worth noting is that nobody really pays any attention. In one of the books I was reading, the uh, author says that nobody really remarked on the fact that a black player, Fritz Pollard, was leading the Akron Pros but that is probably because nobody generally reported much on the game in the first place, so (laughs) nobody cared even so. The other thing that's sort of funny is that there was a player by the name of Patty Driscoll, who I don't know if Driscoll is in the Hall of Fame. Patty Driscoll is in the Hall of Fame. He had played his entire season with the Cardinals, but he was a friend of George Hallis, and so George Hallis decided he was just going to sign Patty Driscoll, to play on the Staley's for that one game. And again, nobody really seemed to notice or care. The Akron pros win the game, but no national champion is decided on until the following spring when every team gets together at the league meeting. Each team has one vote to decide the league champion, The Akron Pros are elected the champion, and they receive a silver cup. But everybody kind of loses track of this event, and nobody actually knows that the Akron Pros were the champions in 1920 until sometime in the early 1970s.
2: Oh, wow. When you were saying it got forgotten for a little while, I thought you were going to say the 50s, something like that. Wow, the early 70s.
1: Two other things that I think are worth noting. First of all, in the very early development of the league in 1919, there actually almost was a team in New York City. And in part, at least, it was the Sunday blue laws in New York City that had an impact. College football was a big deal in New York in the teens and 20s. So stadiums weren't really available on Saturdays. So they would have had to play on Sundays. And the blue laws prevented it. But then the state of New York or perhaps New York City, I forget which, passed an ordinance that allowed sports on Sunday or so they thought. But then it turned out that the letter of the law, the writing only applied to baseball. So the gentleman who was trying to bring a professional football team to New York City for the first year of the APFA was denied. Do you know what his name was?
0: No, I have
2: a feeling it's somebody whose name I'm going to recognize.
1: John McGraw. Oh, wow. I we, yeah. I, I
2: did not heard that. Yeah. That's pretty unbelievable.
1: Yeah, he apparently had some sort of an interest in football. I think if you give me a second here, I'll find what the, the name of the team was going to be.
2: Which is funny when you consider that five years later they became the Giants, which is significant. You know, you would have thought McGraw would have been the one who would have named them the Giants.
1: That's a good point.
2: So, yeah, just to kind of touch on, sort of football in the same era. You know, we mentioned the the giant baseball or the football team. They came in in '25, so not that much later, and it was kind of seen as a, a a need to have if the NFL had any chance of really gaining hooks in the public consciousness. Also, in the eastern cities, they really needed a team in the largest media market in the country. And you think about just how much it changed between 1920 and. 19- were the you always had the giants in new york but you also had babe ruth now the yankees and you know new york it probably was already but was the media capital of the world and sporting capital of the world so they really did need a team in new york so 1925 when the giants came in was seen as sort of a a seminal turning point for the nfl
1: mcgraw's team would have been known as brickley's giants after a gentleman by the name of brickley who would have was a former All-American and was intended to be the captain of his team. The only other thing I would mention that is that even though they were not part of the league in 1920, the Green Bay Packers were in existence. They'd been founded by Curly Lambeau. They were a town team playing independent games and were made up at this point almost entirely of men from in and around the Green Bay area, and they would join the league within the next couple of years. So that is football in or professional football in the year 1920, the very first year of existence of what would one day become the NFL. Shall we move on to boxing?
2: Yes. You and I boxing or talking about boxing?
1: That might be a little bit difficult remotely, although we may be, uh we'll be around each other in the next couple of weeks for Thanksgiving. I should note, just sort of a quick aside, and things can always change, but the goal is to record an episode face-to-face, and won't be either of these episodes, but perhaps a next episode. So stay tuned for a face-to-face episode, the first uh, face-to-face episode in the history of hello old sports. So the heavyweight champion in 1920 is Jack Dempsey. And we talked about Dempsey a little bit when we did our boxing episode a few episodes ago, but Dempsey is the heavyweight champion. He had won the title the previous year. He had fought seven times in 1919, including four in January alone. And then once he wins the world title later in 1920, he steps his workload back quite a bit. He he has two fights in 1920 against Billy Misk and Bill Brennan, wins both of those. And Al Smith, the governor of New York, had sort of supported a push to pass legislation. And in 1920, boxing is finally legal in New York state. So that opens up places like Madison square garden and Yankee stadium. And Dempsey has his first fight. And really, the one of the first major boxing matches in the history of Madison square garden against bill Brennan. Uh, He almost loses, but the fight grosses $208,000 in 1920.
2: And that would have still been the second guard. If I'm not, uh, if I'm correct, right. Didn't the the third guard, opened sometime in the 20s, but I'm pretty sure in 1920, it would have been the, you know, the second one, the first one that was actually like a real, what we'd consider these days an arena.
1: I believe that's correct. I believe that the the other Madison Square Garden, the third one, didn't open until sometime in the mid-20s. So yes, that's correct. That would have been the the first, I'm sorry, that would have been the second of Yeah, the third Madison Square Garden did not open until 1925. The second one had opened in 1890. That was where this one was held.
2: Yeah, so just because you touched on it, the law that was passed in 1920 was called the Walker Law. Boxing had been legal up until three years before that in New York. The law limited matches to 15 rounds, uh required a physician in attendance, restricted certain aggressive acts such as headbutting, and created a regulatory commission, the New York State Athletic Commission, which still does exist to this day. It was for a long time the, the major sanctioning body, which we've, you've listened to our boxing episodes, you've heard us talk about, where you had the uh, National Boxing Association, the NBA, and the NYSAC, the NYSAC were really the you know major sanctioning bodies. they were far more harmonious than the current sanctioning bodies but that was all began in 1920 with the walker law which reinstituted boxing in new york state after a three-year hiatus and also signaled the end of the career of headbutt jones and his signature move
1: is that true
2: no i've just the fact that they they needed a law to restrict headbutting (laughs) Like, I guess before that, you could, like, during boxing, you could just headbutt, like, freely, I
1: guess. Yeah, and it really is sort of the first, you know, you start seeing these ongoing efforts to make the sport of boxing more respectable. And that's a lot of what we talked about these last few weeks. So Dempsey is probably the first celebrity heavyweight champion. And a lot of that comes with the era. It's the same era of Ruth and. Red Grange and Bill Tilden and all of these other sporting celebrities. Obviously, the fact that he's white and not black, as Jack Johnson had had been, played a role. I think that the fact that New York City was now open to him, even though it had only been a few years, I think by instituting some of these restrictions, it sort of signals that New York City is open for business for boxing. And you see a lot of these big ticket heavyweight fights start to come to New York City for the first time. Previously, they'd been foreign countries or out in the Midwest somewhere. So the combination of the media, New York, Dempsey, really bring professional boxing into the mainstream celebrity World for the first time, but it's not without controversy for Dempsey. He he actually, and just to note, he actually later fights in at both the Polo Grounds and Yankee Stadium. So big fights in major American stadiums in big cities. Dempsey not exactly popular, not entirely popular in. 1920 during and after world war one he had been accused of being a draft dodger and folks had wondered why if he was so physically fit to get in the ring and fight why he wasn't serving abroad in world war one and he ends up with a divorce suit that's brought and within that suit there are accusations made that he had taken steps to dodge the draft. Dempsey claims that it's because he is the supporter of his mother. He has dependents, that type of thing. But he actually goes on trial for draft dodging and he's acquitted. But part of the reason why maybe he doesn't fight as much in 1920 is because he's distracted with this trial that is taking place, accusing him of having dodged the draft in World War One, so not a universally popular champion for any of his run as the heavyweight champion. I think sometimes folks tend to view him sort of in the vein of a Rocky Marciano, somebody who didn't really have any criticism in mainstream America because he wasn't a minority, because he wasn't a, a talker. But Dempsey really not very popular in the country in some circles because of this perception that he had dodged the draft.
2: Yeah. And you saw that with some baseball players who got sort of cushy jobs in defense industries. And you know they were able to not dodge the draft, but kind of get off on a technicality that way. So certainly not unique to him, but unique in how far it went in terms of actually being put on trial and things like that.
1: So uh, ironically, Dempsey actually, Joins the Coast Guard for World War II and ends up serving on Okinawa Beach in Japan in 1945 at a very advanced age. He would have been 50 at the time. So he, years later, tries to make up for the fact that he did not serve in World War I by serving as a member of the Coast Guard in World War II at a very advanced age.
2: Yeah, I did not know that. Wow.
1: Yeah. So, all right.
2: Vietnam, or did he, because he was alive, he didn't die until 1983.
1: He did not serve in Vietnam. No, he did not. But really sort of becomes, and we talked about this a little bit in a previous episode, becomes sort of an elder statesman of boxing. And there's pictures, I found a picture online of, I think it's like six of them. It's Dempsey, Ali, I think Joe Frazier is even in the picture, Joe Lewis. Let me see if I can find this picture real quick. Yeah, if you just, you can Google this picture, and I think Marciano had passed away in a plane crash by this point, but it's Ali, I think that's Floyd Patterson, Joe Lewis, I'm sorry, Dempsey, Joe Lewis, Frazier, and then I don't know who that is on the right. But if you look, there are pictures of Dempsey with heavyweight champions all the way up through the 1970s, which is kind of cool the way that this fraternity stayed in touch throughout the entirety of Dempsey's life, very long life.
2: Yeah, and Jack Dempsey's one of those guys where in my head, it's like, it's weird to see as I'm looking at pictures, and the one you mentioned is basically in black and white, but weird to see pictures of Jack Dempsey in color because in my head it's he's another one where like he existed in a black and white world you know
1: absolutely absolutely another one of these guys who was there for the entire landscape of 20th century sports did you have anything else in the boxing realm that you wanted to mention before we moved on
2: I think that pretty much covers it
1: so 1920 uh being a an even-numbered year, there was an Olympics that year. The 1920 Olympics were held in Antwerp, Belgium. There had been no games in 1916 because of World War One, But in 1920, we see the Olympics in the town of Antwerp, Belgium. The, there, were, there were no Winter Olympics at this point, there were still only Summer Olympics, but this was the seventh Olympiad and it was held in Antwerp, Belgium. And because there were no Winter Olympics yet, there were some winter sports such as ice hockey were actually held prior to the beginning of the summer games, there were some winter sports that were held as part of the whole big Olympics.
2: Yeah, and one thing that's that's interesting is part of how you mentioned there was no Olympics in nineteen sixteen because of World War One. Well for this Olympics, Hungary, Germany, Austria, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire had all been banned from play as part of their whether you want to call it punishment or retribute, whatever you want to call it, because of their role and what the victors had determined was their you know, fault of starting World War One, They were not allowed to participate in the Summer Olympics in 1920.
1: The locals in Antwerp, Belgium, have very little interest in the games. There's sort of a class divide there where the working class citizens of the city don't have very much interest in the games, although that does not apply to the uh, football or, as we call it, soccer Match between Belgium and Czechoslovakia, which is so popular that fans are trying to burrow under the stadium. They're digging sort of tunnels, trying to get in to see the soccer match, the gold medal game between Belgium and Czechoslovakia. There are also some interesting notes about this Olympics. Incidentally, Belgium does win that game and becomes the champion of the 1920 uh, Summer Olympics soccer match. Some interesting elements. This is the first time that the United States sends a women's swimming team to the Olympics. And this is also the oldest Olympic medalist in Olympic history, a 72-year-old man by the name of Oscar Swan Wins a silver medal as part of the Swedish team in what is known as the running deer double shot, which is one of the shooting events in the early days of the Olympics. So a 72 year old Olympian, a 72 year old medalist at the games in 1920.
2: And also, as I'm, I'm reading this here and I, I can't pretend to know the details, but it says the, um, in the sailing, the 12-foot dinghy event took place in two different countries. The final two races in the event were independently held in the Netherlands on its own accord because the only two competitors in the event were Dutch. So <laughs> they just decided, well, we'll do it in the Netherlands then.
1: That would be kind of like, and, and obviously not not likely to happen this time, but... Imagine if the Giants and the Jets made the Super Bowl one year and it was supposed to be in California and they were like, ah, why don't we just do it here? Nobody needs to travel.
2: But it sounds, well, except even they were there already and they just, I guess, went home.
1: I don't know. We talked about football. We talked about the Olympics and we talked about the reign of Jack Dempsey continuing in 1920 as the heavyweight champion. And I guess what we want to do next is sort of, some of the things that maybe we're not planning to dive quite as deep into, but a lot of other interesting things happened here and there in sports in 1920. So we want to just touch on some of those briefly as well. Andrew, did you have anything you wanted to start off with?
2: Well, I guess we'll start off with, uh, with horse racing and man of war, a very famous horse who ironically also went on trial for dodging the draft, but, um, <laughs> But uh, Man of War, this was his famous year. He had lost the year before in the very famous, his only loss of his career to Upset. Now, there are people who have erroneously attributed, and I was guilty of this for a while, but I was young, who have erroneously attributed that race to the sports term Upset, and that's really not. There's usage of it recorded before Upset beat Man of War in Saratoga in 1919, but. As a three-year-old in 1920, Man of War, and I'm going to pull up his exacts, did not run in the Kentucky Derby. It was a time, all three races existed, but it was a time before the Triple Crown, as we know it today, was was an entity that people talked about. They were three big races, but they weren't the be-all and end-all. So did not run in the Kentucky Derby. And the reason for that was that the Preakness Stakes was only a couple of later, and they decided at the time it was too early to, they didn't want to. It's the same thing that happens now, but where they didn't want to have the horse race too close together. So the first race of Man of War in 1920 was the Preakness Stakes in Pimlico. He won that. He then raced a couple of races at Belmont, including the Belmont Stakes, which he won in June, and then went up to Saratoga and ended up winning the Traverse Stakes, which is still a huge race in horse racing, a lot of times considered the fourth biggest race behind the Triple Crown races, maybe the Breeders' Cup. So, all in all, Man of War raced one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 11 times in 1920, won every single one of them, including what ended up being his last race ever, October 12th, 1920, at Kenilworth Park, uh, and won by seven lengths over Sir Barton. And that was the last race of Man of War's career.
1: I, when I saw Kenilworth, there's a Kenilworth in the d c area I thought maybe that was in my neck of the woods, but it's it's not although his uh his previous his second to last race was very much in my neck of the woods at a town called Hob de Grasse, which is just north of Baltimore so one of the most dominating years or for a horse in the history of thoroughbred racing, I also read that he tended to carry quite a bit more weight than any other horse so he was already at a disadvantage he was heavier than most racehorses but nonetheless managed to win almost every race he ever raced in
2: just uh sort of for reference Meadow War lived until 1947 so another 27 years after he retired from race was racing and this is a horse remember his funeral was broadcast live on NBC radio in 1947. <sighs> a funeral for a horse I was just gonna say it's just to show you how culturally significant Man of War was that a quarter of a century after he raced his last race and again was a horse, they aired his funeral live on the radio.
1: Yeah, no, and that it just shows you the culture prior to about sometime in the nineteen fifties, the, the three biggest sports in the United States were boxing, baseball, and horse racing.
2: Keeping it on racing, if you don't mind, the Support of auto racing, this was 1920, was the year of the 8th Indianapolis 500. I think they had taken a couple of years off during World War II, so it wasn't the 8th year of it, but it was the 8th running of the Indianapolis 500. You know, think about what automobiles were like in 1920 and going 500 miles. The winner of the race, and this will be a last name you will be familiar with, is Gaston Chevrolet, was the one who (laughs) won the indianapolis 500 that year this was still the era of um two-man cars where you had a riding mechanic with you those actually in the early days kind of fell in and out of favor and for a while they were mandatory and then for a while very few people used them and then they kind of made a comeback before finally um you know totally going away but uh it says guest and chevrolet himself racer named ralph de palma had a two-lap lead when his car stalled on lap 187 his riding mechanic ran to the pits to get a can of gasoline, thinking they were out of fuel. De Palma was able to get to the car, and the two rejoined the race. During the, lead, during the delay, Gaston Chevrolet took the lead. He ran out of fuel on lap 197, but he was able to coast to the pits and refuel, and he held on to win. And actually, it says seven months later, Gaston Chevrolet was killed in a car crash in Beverly Hills. And just to sort of show you how different a world it was, although I don't think too many people thought. I don't think too many people are surprised that auto racing has has evolved in the last 100 years. But um, he won the race, the Indianapolis 500, without a single tire change, which was a remarkable feat at the time, but is now almost, you know, it'd be like saying a baseball team won the World Series and they only had one glove.
1: Like... (laughs) Average time, average speed was about 99 miles an hour, under 100 miles an hour for the Indianapolis 500. In those days, I'm sorry, I should say in these days, the average speeds get up well over 220 miles an hour.
2: Which, honestly, 100 is, is a lot, like for what comparable to what a regular car could do back then. If you had told me the average speeds were 75, I'd have been like, I guess I believe it. So 100 is, you know, Considering how how many people had even really seen cars, then to see them go a hundred miles an hour had to be pretty pretty uh pretty jarring. But yeah, that's the nineteen twenty Indianapolis five hundred. What's next? All right, let's um let's go to college football, which is probably the most established team sport behind baseball, um, at this point. You know, obviously we talked about boxing and horse racing and auto racing, but when you're talking about a team sport College football has been around for a while. It's still nowhere near what you'd think of even 15 or 20 years later. Um, and one way you call that is there was no clear-cut champion. It says the official NCAA division record, Division One football records list California, Georgia, Harvard, and Notre Dame, and Princeton as national champions. Only California, which these days know is known as Cal, the Cal Bears and Princeton claimed the national championship. Andy Smith Pacific Coast champion Cal Wonder Team was the first national champion from the West Coast. Princeton and Harvard were undefeated with one tie, and Notre Dame was led by its first Walter Camp All-American, George Gipp, who died during the season. And if that name sounds familiar, but you can't quite place it, he was the inspiration for the win-one for the Gipper, uh, delivered years later by New
1: so, Gip's best performance that year is probably against Army in what I believe was one of the last games of the season. Actually, it was about halfway through the season. It was October 30th against Army at West Point. Gip passes for 96 yards, runs for 124 yards, returns kickoffs for 112 yards, and drop kicked three extra points. So George Gipp, a great player who passes away later on in the season. And it sort of is he dies on December 14th. I don't know. The season was over by that point, but I don't know whether or not he played in every game or whether he got sick sort of halfway through the season and missed later games
2: so do you have their schedule up there i do what was their last game because i have the story here
1: they played the powerhouse michigan agricultural when did they play northwestern five days previously
2: okay so when you're talking about his death i'm gonna and again this is from wikipedia but wikipedia is usually pretty darn accurate it says a frequently told but probably apocryphal story of gift's death Begins when he returned to Notre Dame's campus after curfew from a night out. Unable to gain entrance to his residence, Gip went to the rear door of Washington Hall, the campus's theater building. He was a steward for the building and knew the rear door was often unlocked. He usually spent such nights in the hall on that night. However, the door was locked and Gip was forced to sleep outside. By the morning, he contracted pneumonia and eventually died from a related infection. It said it is more likely that Gip contracted strep throat and pneumonia while giving punting lessons after his final game, November 20th against Northwestern, since antibiotics were not available in the 1920s, treatment options for such infections were limited and they could be fatal. So it sounds like what most likely happened was after that uh, Northwestern game, he was out, you know, giving lessons on punting the ball and got strep throat. And, you know, so I don't know if he'd gotten sick in the time before the Michigan agricultural game or if, he just didn't play in it because they didn't think they need. I I I can't pretend to know, but um, it was pretty much right in lockstep with right after the season ended. He uh
1: he died. So there's a book that I read, or I I at least used. There's a book that I used in preparation for this book called "Rockney of Notre Dame: The Making of a Football Legend," written by Ray Robinson, who's written a bunch of sports books, and he tells the story of Gip. Gip was one of these. He was a partier. He was a fun-loving guy. He was somebody who struggled to stay in school. Rockney had to pull some strings to keep him eligible from an academic point of view. He was also a person with a very dark sort of outlook on life, somebody who thought he would die young. And I think it's worth sort of, I think it's worth reading this passage in full just to give you an idea of the kind of outlook that George Gipp had on life. It has been said that Gipp, as he pursued his fast life, was a fatalist who nursed a premonition of early death. This may have dated from the time when Gip and a friend visited a circus grounds in South Bend. There, a gypsy told his fortune by a perusal of her playing cards. She cautioned him to be very careful for what she saw threatened an early death for him. Once, when Gip and some friends, on their way home for Christmas break, carried a suitcase loaded with whiskey, Gip had beaten a liquor salesman at Poole, and because the salesman had no money... Gip had been willing to settle for the liquor. On the train, Gip opened the bottle, sharing his good fortune with his companions. As they drank out of paper cups supplied by the railroad, the train passed a large cemetery. For a moment, Gip put down his cup and stared glumly at the burial grounds. Before long, that's where I'll be, he said. One of the friends tried to put the matter in perspective. We'll all be there someday, George, he said. But Gip was insistent. My time here is short, he responded. I'll beat all of you. So a person, despite his fun-loving ways, who for one reason or another had a very dark outlook on oh. his life and his future, you wonder if a guy like that had made it to those early days of the NFL what his legacy might be. But well, on the other hand, Newt Rockney, who himself died very young, probably would not be known as the Newt Rockney of... American sports lore had it not been for that speech. So it's interesting how things work out.
2: Well, and I also a couple of things on that. One, I don't know how many guys, even a couple years later, like being an all-American football, as counterintuitive as it seems now, didn't necessarily mean your next step was to go play professional football. You know, a lot of people college football kind of the end of it, or you did something else, or you tried to play baseball or something. You know, but pro football was necessarily the clear path. The other thing I wanted to touch on kind of referenced, you know, at the beginning when you were talking about sort of setting the steam from the culture I can't speak to all the mystical stuff that was apparently going on but you know, you mentioned the partying and obviously in the 20s even though it was prohibition, you think of the partying, flappers and the dancing and everything. The sort of underpinning, the undercurrent of all of that was we'd just gotten off a war like no one had ever seen before. World War One. A lot of people were coming back with shell shock, which was really the first time people talked about that in a significant way. And this'll be especially relevant to now, which is right as World War One was wrapping up, you also had the Spanish flu pandemic, which I think up until this year we've probably never fully appreciated the effect that had on people and the culture. And I mean obviously Mm -hmm. aligned with World War One, but that sort of everybody got let outdoors again and the partying began but there was also quite a bit of fatalism involved in it you know people who came back from the wars and things like that who basically just said like well i'm already dead based on what i saw over there so i may as well just drink myself into the grave or do whatever into the grave so Again, it sounds like with Gip, there might have been some tarot cards involved, but I (laughs) think that wasn't an anomaly, even for someone who seemingly had the world by the uh, by the ears. I guess we can say.
1: I think that's true. Where else do we want to go? Is there anything else?
2: Oh, oh, we have plenty else, but I'll try to speed things up here. All right, um, Stanley Cup Finals, and this was a weird era because for a long time, the Stanley Cup was what was called the challenge. Think of it like a boxing title or a wrestling title, where It was put on the line. Um, and then in the mid twenties, it became exclusive property of the NHL. But here we're in a weird era, which was between, it was between 1914 when the challenge era ended and 1926, when it became exclusive to the NFL, excuse me, the NHL, where it was contested between two leagues. You had the NHL, the National Hockey League and the Pacific Coast Hockey Association. So the uh, champions of both of those leagues would play in a series for the Stanley Cup. And this year from the NHL, it was the Ottawa Senators and from the Pacific Coast Hockey League, it was the Seattle Metropolitans. And where this gets interesting is because, well, A, this was the last Stanley Cup appearance for a team from the West Coast until the Kings in 1993. But where it gets interesting is this series was supposed to be played all five games in Ottawa. And after, uh, I believe it was game three. The series had to shift to Toronto for the last two games, even though it was between Ottawa and Seattle. And do you know why the series had to shift between Ottawa and Toronto?
1: I do, but only because I heard you give a little preview of this on your Monday Facebook Live show, The Split Decision with Andrew Newman.
2: The reason for that was the ice melted. The uh, (laughs) Ottawa Arena still had natural ice, which, as I've mentioned, I'm... I'm pretty sure didn't mean they built an arena on a lake, poured a bunch of water in a pool, basically, and let it freeze with the cold air. And it got late enough in the year where it melted, and they had to move to Toronto, which did have a, an ice-making system. So, long story short, the series ends in... uh It ends with Ottawa winning the Stanley Cup three games to two. It went the full five games. They won games one and two and then uh, in game 5 they win 6 to 1 so the Ottawa Senators win the 1920 Stanley Cup so that I wanted to mention professional basketball won't take very long because there was no professional basketball in 1920 college basketball and again you're talking real sort of uh, primitive the NCAA tournament wouldn't come on, come away for you know come off for quite a while but the 1919 1920 college basketball season is what i'm talking about here the uh, helms foundation player of the year was howard can from national championship playoff game you had penn beat chicago to capture the national championship can't say i know too much more about what happened beyond that but that was uh What was listed as the national champion was Penn beating Cago in a playoff game. I guess I'll go to tennis and golf real quick. Tennis.
1: Before you go to, before we move on, I just want to note that one of the other things that was big in basketball, this area was something known as the black fives era, which was essentially barnstorming, sort of similar to what we saw in the NFL or in, in football previous to 1920 previous to what you saw in Negro league baseball. You had these, Teams of black players sort of playing throughout the country in the major cities of the North and Northeast. And one of the things that's interesting is that there was a team from Pittsburgh that was called the Lowendi Big Five, L O E N D I. And I'm not sure the genesis of that name, but they won five colored basketball championships, including four in a row from 1920 to 1923. One of their star players was a gentleman by the name of Cumberland Posey, uh, commonly known as Cum Posey, who later went on to found and lead the Homestead Grays in the Negro Baseball League. And he is one of two men or two individuals in North America who is a member of two professional sports hall of fames. He is in both the baseball and the basketball hall of fame. So an interesting note there. And this was a time, just as black baseball was really coming into prominence, black basketball was doing the same thing, although maybe not on quite as organized of a level.
2: Looks like, um, Going back to college basketball quick, the Pennsylvania team that's considered the national champions went 22 and uh, 22 and one, including 10 and 0 in the Ivy League. And you have to admire the Ivy League that even back then, pretty standard schedule. There was only six Ivy League teams that played uh, Harvard. I don't see on here. And then I'm trying to figure out real quick in my head who the eighth team that's not on here. Brown, no Harvard, no Brown, but they played a balanced, you know, Ivy League 10 game schedule. So I'm sure they played everybody twice. But, uh, Penn wins at 22 and one, 10 and 0 in the, in the Ivy League. Just to finish up with a couple here, tennis, you had Bill Tilden, who we mentioned before is one of sort of the famous tennis players of the era, won the US Open and Wimbledon. And Pat O'Hara Wood won the Australian Open. So those were the three, what they now call grand slams that were in place then. The French Open did not yet exist but bill tilden wins 2 of the 3 major tournaments of the year similarly in golf there was no masters yet in golf and no nobody won more than one of the other majors the us open or the whatever the the british open and the amateur championship no names that really would jump out it wasn't anybody who won more than one so i didn't really even record that cuz i didn't think it was going to going to mean anything to anybody other than to just say those things did did exist back then and, you know, in a way, and they had prestige within their sports. And then the last thing I have to end on, of course, is professional wrestling in the year 1920 was highlighted by a series of matches between Joe Stecker and Ed Strangler Lewis. And this was a very interesting era because it's capped off by a match on December 13th, 1920 in New York city where Ed Strangler Lewis won the world heavyweight title from Joe Stecker. And while it's a matter of some controversy, famous wrestler from a generation later in the thirties and forties and fifties, Luthez said that this was the last major wrestling world title match that was a legitimate contest, what they call a shoot match, meaning it was a non predetermined. And then after that, once Ed Strangler Lewis won the title, the, sort of transition over to predetermined or worked matches began. So I figured I would at least get that in there.
1: I have a DVD from, uh, that I got off somebody on the internet several years ago. Um, it, and the guy calls it uh, NWA Volume Zero. And it is a series of matches from the earlier days of, what we know today as professional wrestling. And on the guy's website, I just pulled it up and said, this footage is so rare. Even the late Lou Thez <laughs> contacted me for a copy. So crazy to think that even, even Thez wanted a copy of this. And the first match on there, it's actually Earl, not.
2: Earl Caddick against Joe Stecker. Say again. There's, there's on YouTube. There's from earlier that year, it's Earl Caddick against Joe Stecker. And it's listed as the oldest pro wrestling on film.
1: That is exactly what it is. It is, quote, 22 minutes of a match that lasted two and a half hours. So you're saying that in 1920, was it still real? Were they still really fighting?
2: It's a matter of debate. It's it's very likely that there was a mix of real matches and predetermined matches throughout 1920 you know it was that was during the transition certainly by a few years later it was pretty much entirely a entertainment uh enterprise meaning it was you know not real contests but ed strangler lewis was sort of seen as the guy who took it from the sort of real sport to the Whatever you want to call it. I'm trying to avoid using the word fake because as a wrestling fan, that's not a word I like to use. But, you know, who took it from that aspect to the other? It's just a matter of when and was that last Stecker match. At some point in 1920, the guard changed. It's just a matter of when. But regardless, those were considered to be monumental matches adjusted for the time.
1: And I think it's interesting that we see in this time period boxing and wrestling moving in different directions at the same time you see wrestling move totally over to pure entertainment where the outcomes are predetermined and the wrestlers are working together on the other hand you see boxing in new york is a good example of this trying to clean it up uh, limiting the number of rounds uh, having a doctor on site so you see boxing and wrestling, which I think probably in the eighteen and early nineteen hundreds were seen as one of the one and the same, or at least seen as sort of very much related to each other. You see them really going in opposite directions, starting in nineteen twenty or so.
2: And just to put a nice button on this, I think uh, we might sort of wrap everything up. When I talked earlier about the Walker Law that established the New York State Athletic Commission, and I talked about it in the context of boxing other states had similar laws and established athletic commissions as late as the 80s the 1980s even after wrestling for you know generations at that point had been an entertainment sport or an entertainment you know endeavor the same athletic commission still governed wrestling and boxing and all kinds of sporting events so you would still have a guy who might have been working as the athletic commissioner at a boxing match before at a wrestling show in an authority role. So it was just kind of a weird divergence that the same thing, the same entity governed both a real sport and a, a real sport that was sometimes fixed in boxing and a fixed sport that sometimes got real in wrestling.
1: That's a good point. And you just, one other thing I would say is you mentioned Bill Tilden and he's another one who I think gets mentioned in that breath with Dempsey and, Babe Ruth and Red Grange, who comes along a little bit later as sort of the generation of sports heroes of the 1920s. It's another one of those heroes that gets mentioned.
2: Yeah, he's he's up there as well.
1: All right. So that is our first half of our journey through sports in 1920. I think just the sheer amount of what it was going on, whether it was with Dempsey, whether it was with the fledgling APFA, later known as the NFL, or whether it was what was going on in some of these other individual sports, it really was sort of a watershed for a lot of these sports. So Thank you all for joining us in our next episode. We will continue on this journey into 1920 and talk about baseball in 1920 in all of its sports, the American League, the National League, the Negro Leagues. And we appreciate you joining us as always and hope you will join us again next week as we talk about baseball in 1920. Until then, I'm Dan Newman.
2: And I'm Andrew
0: Newman. Goodbye, All sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.